Well, good afternoon. I want to go ahead and extend the same welcome that Richard gave out. It's such a pleasure to worship with each and every one of you this afternoon. I especially appreciate Richard for, for reading that scripture reading for me. As he pointed out when I gave it to him, he said, oh, that sure is a cheerful uh, scripture reading, and he, he's right. It's not a very cheerful scripture reading at all. But it is an important one, nonetheless, to understand uh, in the context of what's about to happen. This time period that this is happening, that this is going on, <clears throat> is between the years of 930 and, and 720 B.C. And, and we see this as a period of Israel's history that is known as the Divided Kingdom. In this time, the nation of, of, of Israel was divided into two parts. It was divided into a, a northern kingdom that was known as the, nation of, uh, the kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom known as the nation of Judah. Uh, Israel had its capital here in Samaria, and Judah had its capital in Jerusalem. And as you can imagine, as with any large, uh, large country or, or, or even a family, when they're divided, they're not at their full strength. They're, they are weakened by the state that they are in. <clears throat> and so they open themselves up to attack, and attacks come. And they, we see uh, sieges that have been laid upon them by the likes of the Syrians, the, the, the men from Moab, Ammon, and, and even from farther away. Eventually we see Assyria, Babylon, uh, Babylon that, coming in and, and attacking and eventually evading, invading and capturing uh, both tribes, or both kingdoms, excuse me. But our scripture reading talks about a specific event an event that happened during the siege uh, of Syria. It mentioned Ben-Hadad. Uh, ben and Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria. He planned this attack, and, and what he would have done was he, he surrounded the city and he cut them off. He cut them off. They couldn't get food and water in, and they would have been prepared for things like this to happen. They would have stored up food and water, but we see that he did this for so long that eventually it brought about a terrible, terrible famine. It tells us that, that they were under siege for quite a while. This wasn't just a couple of days, a couple of weeks. This went on for a very long time. And it went on to such a, a point that they ultimately started to do some pretty unbelievable things. You know, as, we, as we read there, the, the eating of, of the children, at this, for instance, here. But the story goes on. And in chapter 7, I want to draw your attention to verse 3. Now, this is at the same time, during the same siege. And in verse 3, we read, Now there were four lepers, men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? So now we have these four lepers introduced to us, and they're discussing really the vanity of their situation. You know, they recognize we are lepers. And outside the gate, the gate this is basically a death sentence for us. We are going to die. But it wouldn't be any better if we were inside the gate. Because they are going to die too. So they're looking at their situation and they see it as nothing but despair. So going on in verse 4, If we say, we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we said here, we die also. Now, therefore come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. We see now that they, they've kind of come up with this plan. They say, you know, if we're going to stay here and die or we're going to go in there and die, we could at least, well, maybe we'll go surrender to the Syrians. And they might, they might kill us, but that's really no worse off than where we're at right now. Or they might feed us. So we understand the logic behind their decision. They're in desperation, so they make this move to go to surrender to the Syrian army. Continuing on in verse 5. 
And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of the chariots and the noise of the horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. So we see that they're very surprised when they come and they find the camp abandoned. And not just abandoned, they left everything. As we, as we would read on, the, the men of Israel eventually give chase to them and they find out that they, they didn't just leave the camp. As they were running away, they were taking off their armor, throwing down their weapons, their clothes. They were getting out of there. And they were leaving everything behind. So let's see what they, what they did in this instance. So in verse 8, And when the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into the one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Uh, then they came back and entered another tent and carried some more from there also and went and hid it. Then, there, then they said to one another, and I think this is important, this is key. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come. Let us go and tell the king's household. And if we continue reading, we'll see that's exactly what they did, to go on and to tell the king's household, to tell those in the city. You see, after some thought, they realized it was very, very important to be telling others what they had found. Within this account of torment, within this account of salvation of these four lepers, is a very valuable lesson for us today. Especially when we think about what they said. This day is a day of good news. This evening I would like to notice three things about this account. The first one is that there are parallels between what happened in those days and what's happening today. There are parallels between the lepers and between ourselves. Second thing is there are consequences if, if we keep silent when we have a good news to share. And the third thing I want to point out is there are reasons, there are possibly reasons why some keep silent today. And we want to look at those. But let's begin with the parallels for both then and now. In both cases, we see that there was a famine. There's a famine going on. And that day they were starving for food. And we're going to unbelievable lengths to get nourishment. Now, when we say that there was a famine, I don't want you to think that their bellies were grumbling. When we see that there was a famine, there was, there was severe hunger going on for people to stoop to this level to try to get nourishment. They were dying. Today, there also is a famine going on. There's a famine that, for the blessings which only God can provide. Romans chapter 3, if you want to kind of hold your fingers here, we'll flip back and forth a few times to 2 Kings, but Romans 3 tells us in verse 23 that, that the blessing or, or the famine that we have, the famine that we are going through these, this day, is a famine that's related to the problem of sin. It says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the reason why we're having the famine that we're having. But God also says that there is a solution to our famine, to our problem. In chapter 6, verse 23, he says, For the wages of sin is death. Here's the famine again. This is the reason why we have the famine. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he's saying is there is a solution, but it is the only solution 
to the famine that we are in. Another parallel that we see in this situation is that there was also an abundance both then and now. Then the abundance was in the Syrian camp. And I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. As I said, we will flip back and forth. In 2 Kings, uh, if you held your place there, it talked about in verse 25. Verse 25, it said, There was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. Why do you think a donkey's head would be worth 80 shekels of silver? It's because these people were so hungry, they were willing to eat a donkey's head. Now stop and think for a minute that a donkey was an unclean animal. A donkey was an unclean animal. And not only this, this isn't the best part of a donkey, I imagine. The head can't be the best tasting part of the donkey. But these people were willing to pay 80 shekels of silver for this meat. And then it goes on. And verse 25, it drops down a little bit further. It says that uh, one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Dove droppings. What this probably means is they were buying the, the excrement of a dove and getting the seeds out of it that it hadn't processed. They were this hungry that they would pay money for that. They were in a terrible, terrible place. But notice what, what Elisha says to them in chapter 7 and in verse 1. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So here we go, one day, 24 hours of time, a head of a donkey cost 80 shekels of silver, and now in 24 hours, a seah of flour is going to cost one shekel. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of change we want to see in our market today. We would love to see our money grow in its, in its ability like that. What that tells us is that this whole aspect, if you remember from economy class, supply and demand, supply went way, way up for the children of Israel. There was an abundance of food found at, the, at, this, at this camp. When we think of that, this was probably an army that ran off, and we think of what it takes to feed an army. They found a lot, a lot to eat here. So now when we relate that now to today, in our case, there is an abundance of spiritual blessings in Christ. If you want to look over at Ephesians, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we'll couple that with Revelation. Revelation chapter 22 Excuse me, Revelation 22 and verse 17, where it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come, whatso, or whoever desires, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Before service this morning, me and Brother Charles were talking about the population of the earth today. And between our minds, we reasoned that it was probably somewhere between three and four billion, and we could be completely off on that, I don't know. But what this passage is saying to us, what these passages are saying is there is an abundance. And I apologize, but my PowerPoint may die on me. There is an abundance that Christ offers to us. Three and a half billion people on this earth, and every one of them can take freely of this water of life. It is provided to everyone. God has made provision for all on this earth now and on the earth to come and on, on the days past. There is a huge abundance just like there was then. Next thing we see is some found what they needed. 
In the case back in 2 Kings, it was the lepers. The four lepers found what, what it was they needed to, to survive. They found this abundance in the Syrian army or in the Syrian camps. Today it is us Christians. Us Christians who have experienced the joy of salvation, have found salvation. We found what we needed. We found what we needed to, for the wages of sin, which was death. We found that gift that God offers. But it's right here. It's right here that the line is often drawn and the similarities often end. You see, the lepers, they knew what was right. And in knowing what was right, they did what was right. It says that they knew it would be wrong to keep silent. And they knew that if they, if they did, they would be punished for keeping this good news to themselves. So they went back to the city and told the good news to the people that needed to hear it. To their brothers and sisters who were dying, starving to death. Many Christians today are not like these lepers. Even though each day is a day of good news, there are many who will remain silent. And while so many around them are dying, are starving spiritually, they will feast themselves upon the gospel. I want you to consider this afternoon that doing so is wrong. It's wrong for us to do that. We should learn a lesson from these lepers. When they said to themselves, we are not doing what is right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. This can be true of us today. And when they said of themselves, if we wait until morning light, punishment will come upon us. We need to consider the fact that this may be a true statement for us today too. They stopped to question the consequences of remaining silent. Have we done that? Have we stopped to consider the consequences of keeping silent with the good news of the gospel? Let me share with you some of the consequences that we see throughout throughout the scripture. The first one we see is in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. We fail to keep the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus gives a command, and he wants his disciples to observe all the commandments that he gives. So in 28, verse 18, we read, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even always to the end of the age. Excuse me, one second. We can save this. So Jesus commands them to go and to make disciples. Keeping silent is not fulfilling that commandment. And so in, in keeping silent, we fail to keep the command of the Great Commission. The next thing we see is we fail as our mission as a people of God. Look over in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and in verse 9 and 10, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have 
obtained mercy. As the privileged people of God, we are to proclaim the praises of God. This means, this is especially regarding to to how God has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We should be proclaiming that. How God has, has given us mercy when we are a people at one time who had not obtained mercy. How can God's own special people do this while keeping silent? The answer is we can't. And if we can't do it, then we are failing our mission as the special people of God, as the holy or the royal priesthood, as the chosen generation. The next consequence that I want to point out to you is that we will have to answer one day for failing our mission. If you want to turn back to the book of Ezekiel, we're going to again take a message from the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God... He, tell, he sets Ezekiel up as a watchman for the house of Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, and look in verse 17. <clears throat> he says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. So we see that Ezekiel has been set out with a mission. You go warn the wicked. That's your responsibility, Ezekiel. Warn the wicked. In verse 18, he goes on to say, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn him uh, wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from the wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I set a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took your warning Also, you will have delivered your soul. We see that if he failed to warn those that needed the warning, if he failed to give them that warning, they would die in their sin. That would be the first consequence. They are going to die if you don't tell them. But if they die because you didn't tell them, God says, I'm going to hold that against you. Their blood's going to be on your hand. You're going to be held accountable. Today, We don't have Ezekiel. Today, God has set us as watchmen. The church, God has set us, given us the the responsibility to warn those that need to be rewarded, uh, to need to be warned, excuse me. In Mark chapter 16, in verse 15, he says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature or to every person, some translations say. Those who have not heard it, those who have not been proclaimed the gospel, if we have had the opportunity to tell someone and we didn't take opportunity for that, they're going to die in their sins. But we will be held accountable if we do not give them a warning. If we refuse to give them a warning, anything that falls upon them, God is going to look at us and He's going to say, that is on your hands. Despite the consequences of keeping silent, many Christians today still choose to do so. 
They still choose. Possibly they don't know the consequences. Some of them do, and they still just choose to not speak up, to not warn others. They choose to remain silent. And I want to spend the remainder of this, of this period looking at why that might be. Why many keep silent. And for some, it may be because they themselves are starving. They themselves are spiritually starving. 2 Peter 1 and verse 8 talks a little bit about this. If you want to flip over there. 2 Peter 1 verses 8 and 9 where we read, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. What this is telling us is it's possible to fail to grow. It's possible for us to fail to be growing in Christ. And some who have once experienced the joy of salvation, now they've forgotten, forgotten the blessing that salvation was. So in one sense, really, they've reverted back to starvation. They, they've been like the lepers who, who found the food, but maybe, maybe went back off into the desert, went off and left everything. They went back into a state of starvation. Those who are enjoying the blessings of righteousness, those who are enjoying the blessings of salvation, we should want to tell others about it. We should have a desire to tell others about it. <clears throat> if you want to turn over to John chapter 1, and hold your finger there. Before, before we read that, I want to turn back to Psalms and look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32, we see someone who has been saved from a, a great deal of sin. Psalm 32, we see David who is giving this, showing this great joy for the forgiveness that he's been uh, blessed with. In verse 1 it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Then he goes on to talk about how he was in before times. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I, would not, or I have not hidden. I said, I, have con I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly should pray to you, or shall pray to you, in a time when I may be found, or when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you. In the way you should go, I will guide you with my eye. Be not like the horse or like the mule, with no, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be, shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy sh shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We see David, he wasn't being silent. He wasn't content to just sit back and not tell anybody about what God had done for him. He was excited. He was ecstatic. He wanted to tell the world about what was going on. Likewise, that's the same example we see in Philip. In John chapter 1, in verse 43, I love the reaction of Philip here. It says, then follow, the following day, Jesus went to go, wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. 
the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him. We have found him of whom... uh, Excuse me. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathan said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Philip found Jesus, he wanted to tell other people about it. And even when people were skeptical about it, he encouraged them, Come and see. Come and see Jesus. Do we have this same sort of mentality. Do we have a good news that is worth sharing? Another reason some may not is because fear or discouragement. Fear, discouragement. And if that reason is fear, if fear is what keeps us silent, then there's some things that I want us to remember. The first one is found over in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, We see in verse 7 and 8 that that God, He desires for us to be anything but fearful. In verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. Paul's saying here, don't be afraid. In fact, if you're afraid, Examples have been given of what to do to help gain the strength that you need. Look over at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and in verse 29. Now, to understand this passage even better, we need to look at the context. This is Peter and John here who have been arrested. They've been arrested and then been let go and been told, Don't you dare speak of His name again. Jesus, you're not going to talk about Him anymore. And so they've left and now they are praying for boldness in a time that I imagine fear was probably something that would have been very easy for them to be. Fearful to, to be the kind of people that want to go and run and hide and say, okay, we're going to give up. But what did they do? They turned to God. In verse 29, they said, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And in verse 31, they said, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. I want to suggest to you this evening that don't think that God won't do the same thing for you. It's hard sometimes. And it's scary sometimes to say the things that need to be said. And if we are fearful, pray to God. Pray that He will give us the boldness we need to say the things that need to be said. And have faith that He will do it. Oh, excuse me. And one last passage I wanted to show, uh, wanted to point to that, that same idea. Is a Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter twenty-two. <clears throat> no, I'm sorry, Revelation twenty-one. Revelation twenty-one and in verse eight. Revelation twenty-one and verse eight gives first place on the list of those that will be condemned to the lake of fire. Gives first position to the cowardly. Now, as I said in class this morning, I don't think fear of hell is the best motivator. But let us remember that God looks down and desires for us to be anything but cowardly. Now, if the idea of discouragement is what causes us to be, uh, to be silent, let's consider Genesis, uh, Galatians, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, and in verse 7, we read, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And continuing on to verse 10, for he, so, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. 
But he who sows to the Spirit will the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6 is telling us there is a reward that is coming, but it's coming in due time, so don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't be discouraged because your, your hard work, your efforts that you put forward now are going to be rewarded. And one way we can help ourselves from not growing weary is to apply what's taught to us in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. <clears throat> Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame that he has set down at the right hand to the throne of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. Jesus faced a lot of discouragement. Jesus faced so much more discouragement than any of us will ever be called to face. Being sacrificed, being murdered, unjustly tried by those that He created, by the people that were His. Let us remember that when we grow discouraged that Christ, He passed through all this so that we too could do the same thing. So that we could bear the cross. So that we can make uh, an effort to continue to, to steadfastly move forward in this race. And so that we could bring others along with us. Fear and discouragement, they're tough problems. They are, but never forget that they can be overcome with faith and perseverance. And lastly, for many, the idea, for many it may be the idea is just simply too complicated. The fact is you don't need a master's degree in intercommunication or interpersonal communication. You don't need four years in a Bible college and you certainly don't need any sort of specialized training course to tell others about Jesus. Sometimes we make it too difficult. We make it that way ourselves. In reality, our task is really quite simple. We're just simply to preach the gospel. Look over at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 1 through 4, Moreover, brethren, I have declared to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. What did He, what did he preach to them? Preached them the same thing that Philip preached, uh, preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. He preached Jesus. He preached the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died on this earth, that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus was resurrected, and that, that now he is, he is in heaven and He is preparing a place. It's a simple, very simple message to preach. Note also in Acts. The gospel, uh, or, or that many times in Acts, excuse me, many of the times, the conversion accounts in Acts, the gospel is usually just presented in one lesson. Sometimes we have this idea like we need to somehow gather up all the people that, that, want to, that we want to be saved. We need to say, listen, we're going to study for three months 
every fifth or, or every fifth day of the week, we're going to pick a day out. We're going, we're, this is going to set this day apart. We're going to learn everything there is to know about the Bible so you can be saved. What we're really saying is we're going to clog up all the time that you have set apart for things you want to do. And I lost it. We're going to clog up all the time that you got and go over all these things when the Bible says there's one thing that we need to start off with. And only one thing. We need to just simply preach the gospel. It is these first principles, the first principles that we're obligated to teach. And only if they accept these principles will they even be ready for further study. Sometimes we get bogged down on teaching things like Christ's doctrine, uh, the organization and the work of the organization and the work of worship or the church, the worship in the church. Without starting at a place like, will you obey Christ's elementary obligations? Commands like faith, repentance, confession, baptism. If we don't start there, then there's no reason to start over in these second principles. And the fact is, if these second principles, these things that come later, after the baptism, the te- as it says in Matthew 28, then after baptism we teach. Those teachings there, if you're uncomfortable teaching those kind of things, that's okay. Because there's several, several men, and, and women even, that are gifted in, in understanding these areas. It's not something that, that, that we need to feel like we are bound to tell other people about. We are simply bound to spread the gospel, to make the, uh, the availability to the answers to questions and to tell people that Jesus died for them and He loves them and He's coming again one day and you better be ready. Sharing the gospel is just that easy. Follow the words of Peter. If you want to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. When Peter said, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and with fear. Give the Lord a special place in your heart. Doing so is going to cause Him... If you have created a home for God in your heart, created a place for Him and, and asked Him through prayer to fill that home, to come into your life, guess what? He's going to do it. And He's going to permeate through your existence. And in doing so, it's going to show in your life. Consider this, maybe, while you're at work, when someone says, how are you doing? I don't know about you, my normal response is, well, I'm never looking up, fine, and keep on walking. But maybe we can change the things we say. Maybe we can say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And that might lead to questions. Why, why are you blessed? Are you ready to answer that question? Are you ready to give a reason for the hope that you have? Christ, that's why I'm blessed. I'm blessed because Christ, because He died for my sins, because He rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, that's why I'm blessed. Are you ready to give an answer like that? That's one way. If we will do, as as Peter said, if we will prepare a spot in our heart for God, then opportunities like that will present themselves. But Peter's not the only one. Look over in Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. We'll look at the words of Paul. Colossians chapter 4, and and look in verse 2 through 6. 
Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in, in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Are we praying for opportunities? You know, I think of a, a sister that I knew one time who said, I pray every morning for the opportunity to teach, but for a specific opportunity to teach. She said, I pray, Lord, please give me someone that I can teach. Please find someone in my day that I can have the ability to teach. I think that's a wonderful example. Are we praying for opportunities that we can use to teach. And remember, it's the Lord who provides these opportunities. Are we praying for wisdom? We should be. Praying for wisdom to make the most of the opportunities that are given. To say the right thing in the right way and at the right time. And as we talked about earlier, are we praying for boldness? To have the courage to say what needs to be said when the opportunity arises. Are we going to be able to say what needs to be said at the time when it needs to be said, instead of saying what others may want us to say. Brothers and sisters, if we are silent in regards to the good news of the gospel of Christ, then the words of the four lepers are true of us today. We are not doing right. Let us go and tell. Let us tell the world that it is spiritually starved and there is a feast that God offers through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let us share with others what we have found so that they can experience too. They can experience the joy and the peace and the love that only God can give. This day is a day indeed of good news because it is a day of salvation. Will we who have been so richly blessed accept the responsibility that Christ has given to us? Will we, will, will we go out into the world and share that? Or will we be like Revelations 2 says? Will we be like those who have left their first love? Revelation 2 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. In verse 4 through 5, Nevertheless, I have this against you that, if you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Are you in need of repentance? Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe you're listening to this sermon and you're realizing, I once, I once was feasting on God's gospel and I have become this starving state and I'm not sharing what I have. The little that I have left, I'm not sharing it with others. It's simply a decision of change. It's simply a decision of repentance, of turning around and saying from this moment forward, I'm going to do what's right. Or maybe you listen to this sermon and you realize that you're starving and that you are lost. You're realizing that you are held siege as the Israelites were, but you're held siege by the devil. And salvation, you need to know, is there for you. Christ made it possible for each and every one of us when he, had, when he died on that cross. And he was raised up and now prepares a place for each of us. But it's only available if we will give our life to him the same way as he did for us. You know, he gave his life for us. But he gave it to us completely. He didn't hold anything back on that cross. He gave his whole life. Are we doing the same for him? If it be your need this evening, 
If maybe there is some sin that you would like to make known to the church or you'd like to ask for the prayers of, uh, of those here to seek help from our great high priest on your behalf, I urge you, please don't wait. Come forward now as we stand and as we sing.